Hello and welcome to the Light from Light podcast. My name is Daniel and your name is... Brother Thomas Torres, comma OP. You're very welcome to join us here for this session. And today we're continuing our three-part journey through Holy Week with the final part. Our triptych, if you like. <laughs> Someone asked us if we had based it on the tritium, but that would have been pretty clever if we had. <laughs> so in our first part, we covered Palm Sunday to Monday Thursday, explaining what major events happen on those days and hinting at some of the meanings. And then in our second part, we covered Good Friday. And we looked at the major events and we also brought in some archaeological fact to help us prepare better for the tritium. Uh, I know the tritium is a big thing in Oxford, in the community there. Well, it's a big thing for the whole church. <laughs> You're right. It, there's a lot of preparations and things that go in. Luckily, my parish back home, they do it very, very well as well. And it's all, you know, everything gets polished, everything gets cleaned. There are lots of things that go on behind the scenes that you don't see. Lots of rehearsals, music rehearsals, rehearsals about where you're going to move and at what times you're going to move. We don't have reading practice, funnily enough. But I mean, if you are reading, then you'll have to, you know, go over it yourself beforehand and things. Today, when we're recording this, is is Good Friday and I'm going to be singing The Passion later so I've had to rehearse that a lot it's very very high I think most parishes wouldn't have all that singing but they would mark the three days that's very very true yeah yeah I don't think we explained before but tridium just means three days one long event in the church so in our second part we had Jesus suffering and then dying and then he's left buried in the tomb but Jesus doesn't remain there but he is very much dead. Yeah, this is something that the gospel accounts really hammer home, really, really want to emphasize. So in John's gospel, we see that Jesus's side is pierced and that blood and water comes forth from the from the heart of Christ. Now, writers, of course, have made a lot about this sort of allegorically with the water and the blood sort of coming from the, the side of the temple. And there are things in the Old Testament as well that sort of that parallel this. In Luke and Mark, it tells us that Jesus breathed his last. Matthew and John, it says he gave up his spirit and there are other things that happen that tell us that this is a cosmic event the death of jesus changes the world the created order is shaken by what happens it's we have something that's literally earth shattering there is an earthquake at the death of jesus uh in one of the gospels the tombs open the veil of the temple is torn uh you see the centurion who represents the gentile world uh who's a, a figure of authority in the roman elite he declares jesus's identity twofold both as the son of god in mark's gospel and also as innocent in luke's gospel so here we have the centurion declaring that jesus is the son of god and that Jesus is innocent. Jesus then has been vindicated and recognized for his identity by the centurion, and he'll be vindicated by his father as he's raised on the third day. We also have in Mark's gospel, Pilate inquires with the centurion just to make sure that he's dead. He speaks to the centurion. So again, we see over and over and over again, scripture wants to emphasize to us the finality of what's happened, that Jesus has died. We have the the, the burial rite of Jesus described, the myrrh and aloes that are brought to anoint his body. And the gospel says spices are used to anoint his body. He's laid in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea is uh, in all four gospels, asks for the body. In John's gospel, we see Nicodemus coming along as well. So what you have here again is an emphasis. This has really happened. Jesus 
has died. The Messiah has died. And at the time, there were a lot of messi- a lot of different messianic expectations. There wasn't just one idea of what the Messiah should be, but one idea of what the Messiah would do would be to overthrow the, those sort of political powers, the Roman powers. And the one thing, perhaps, that all of these different messianic accounts agree on is that the Messiah should be victorious, and that victory doesn't involve the Messiah's own death. We believe Jesus is the Messiah. This is something that's shocking for the people at the time. They don't think that this is the way that it's going to happen. They think that that it's going to be done in another way. How could there be this victory? How could there be a victory if he's dead? How could there be a victory? And this is why Paul says in his letters, obviously, after the resurrection, after encountering Christ himself, the risen Christ, this is why Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? So again, and that comes back to this point that this at the time doesn't look like a victory. This looks like a defeat. It's going to raise in people's minds. Well, you know, if he was really the Messiah, this could never have really happened to him. He could not possibly be dead. And this is, again, why scripture emphasizes, no, he is dead and he is the Messiah and he's about to conquer sin. Well, he's conquered sin or, or already in death on, on the cross. And now we're going to see that he's conquered sin and death on the cross because he's about to rise from the dead. Even that big, heavy stone that symbolizes that great finality uh, being rolled across the the, the front. This stone's going to weigh about two tons. This stone weighs about two tons and it's rolled across the front of, of the tomb. And I'd say actually it represents, it can also represent our sin and those things that we sort of trap ourselves in behind, you know. Very often when people talk about hell and they say, well, you know, why does God send people to hell? I like that image from C.S. Lewis of hell being a door locked from the inside. We've all had those friends, haven't we, that we've tried to help and it doesn't matter what you do, there's always a reason why they can't accept your help. The door is locked from the inside. And again, I would just go back to that sort of that finality that the stone sort of symbolizes. And when the women come come to the tomb, they say, the, the, the three women, who is going to remove the stone for us? There's three of them. <laughs> you know, there's three of them. Who's going to remove the stone for us? Because it's very heavy. It's it's two tons. It's going to be sealed. In one of the accounts, of course, guards are placed at the tomb too. Of course, when the when the women arrive, there are no guards to be found. They've they've scattered and they've ran. Uh, they get bought off, of course, uh, when they start saying that they saw they saw <laughs> that Jesus was resurrected. They get paid off. There's also when the when the women say, "Who will roll away the stone for us?" This is a question that we ourselves can also ask who is going to roll that stone away from our hearts when we become like whitewashed tombs who's going to bring us out of that tomb who's going to bring us out of ourselves so that we might have life in all its fullness and see the fresh air and dwell with christ in the garden so before we go on to look a little bit more about easter sunday morning a question that's been asked throughout the centuries and christians have pondered on what happens to jesus between his death and easter sunday morning the answer to that really comes from the Apostles' Creed. In the Apostles' Creed, there's this line that says that Jesus descended into hell. And there's an ancient homily written by someone. It's anonymous, so we, we're not sure who wrote it. But you can look it up. I'll leave the link in the, 
the notes for the episode. But just a, a few short lines from that, it really speaks about the silence of the earth at the time when Jesus is buried in the tomb. So just a few lines from that. The earth is silent as God sleeps in the flesh, but goes to raise up those who were sleeping from the ages. So God goes to seek out our first parent like a lost sheep. He wishes to visit those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He goes to free the prisoner Adam and his fellow prisoner Eve from their pains. He who is God and Adam's son. And this image or this idea that Jesus descends into hell is depicted in art. There's wonderful paintings of Jesus descended into hell. And he he almost rides the cross. He's standing on the cross. And this homily says that the cross is the weapon that Jesus has used to defeat death. So he goes there during this time to free those who have died, who are in the shadow of death, before Jesus has been resurrected. There's beautiful lines in there as well that remind me of what you were saying in the previous episode. Jesus is speaking the first person. Look at the spittle on my face, which I received because of you in order to restore you to the first divine inbreathing at creation. See the blows on my cheeks, which I accepted in order to refashion your distorted form to my image. So Jesus received all these things out of love to reconcile us, uh, to reconcile those who have died before Jesus to himself. So it's a beautiful homily, which is worth reading and reflecting on, on Holy Saturday. So that's what's happening on Saturday. Jesus has descended into hell, but he's continuing his battle, freeing those who have died from the shackles of death, as he himself is about to defeat death through his resurrection. And then we've now reached Easter Sunday morning, and it's time for the resurrection. And as you've hinted at before, the resurrection is like the central part of our faith. Faith in Jesus is possible only because of the resurrection. Yeah, it's not just that he suffered and died for you. He also rose for you. He came back to life for you. He said, you know, if somebody had tortured me to death, would I bother coming back? Probably not. Um, but, you know, he did. And why did he do it? He did it because he loves you. Uh, you know, as, as Paul says, you know, without the resurrection, our hope is in vain. You know, without the resurrection, our, our hope is in vain. The resurrection is a non-negotiable part of being a Christian. I don't have any time for... <laughs> Maybe I should stop there. Let me save you there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. The resurrection is the central part that really shows the historicity of our faith. Really, what's the point in being a Christian if the resurrection hadn't have actually happened? Exactly. And that's that's Paul's point, isn't it? If he, he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You know, we're not freed from these things. Our biggest enemies in this life, sin and death, we're not freed from them. But only with the resurrection of Jesus are these things defeated. Okay, so very early on Sunday morning, the women from Galilee come to the tomb and they were present there at the crucifixion and at the burial. And now they bring spices to the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid. And obviously there are different different accounts of, of this resurrection, but what the woman in Mark's gospel discover is something very surprising. The stone covering the entrance has been rolled away, as Brother Thomas has said. And inside they don't find the body of Jesus that had been laid there only two days earlier. They find an empty tomb. And the gospels account for different reactions, and I would say different movements of faith. But the empty tomb is almost the first sign of the resurrection. 
I know some commentators on the Gospels say that by itself, it's not enough. It could be explained in some other way. So it's not a direct proof of the resurrection. Nevertheless, the empty tomb is an essential sign for us that the resurrection has actually happened. You told me a fantastic quote from, um, is it Frank Sheed? Yeah. About why the stone was rolled away. Because later, of course, in the in the gospel accounts, Jesus appears to the disciples in the upper room. He it doesn't, you know, there's no sort of opening of the door. He, he appears among them. Yeah, so Frank Sheed says exactly that point, that the stone is not rolled away so Jesus can get out. The stone is rolled away so the woman can enter and see that the tomb is empty. So it's an essential sign to show that the resurrection has happened. But Frank Sheed goes on later and other gospel commentators go on to say that it's the first sign that leads to a place where an encounter is possible with Jesus. They only realise that Jesus has been raised to life after they encounter him personally. Mm. And we should also say as well that just because Jesus, you know, appears in the upper room, uh, just because Jesus would be able to go through the the stone, it doesn't mean it's not a bodily resurrection, okay? Jesus isn't appearing as a ghost or as as a phantom. This is something that's ruled out in, in, in one of the gospel accounts. What other signs do we see? We see the story of Thomas. We also see Jesus eating fish at the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus is eating fish. Uh, you know, it ends with breakfast on the beach, as my old lecturer used to say. With the Gospel of Thomas, we'll we'll go into... Uh, sorry, not the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> with, uh, with what happens to Thomas, what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, here, put your hands in my wounds. Put your hand in my sides. He can touch him. It doesn't say whether Thomas does. It says that Thomas says, my Lord and my God. So we don't know whether Thomas did boldly put his hands in into Christ's Christ's wounds or whether he just saw and then believed. We don't know if he did touch the wounds or whether he saw them and then believed them. Yeah, one of the things Frank Sheed says actually there, just to add, because he's, he's talking about whether Jesus is just a ghost in one of his writings. And he responds to that. Initially, the disciples think, oh, he is a ghost. I am not a ghost. <laughs> yeah, and Jesus' response is, see my hands and feet that I am myself. Handle and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see me to have. I mean, this is so startling because it just raises the mind to realize that actually the resurrected Jesus is not just body and not just spirit, but is both raised to a higher pitch, as is often said about the resurrection. That's it. And there is there are certain sort of qualities or, or properties of the resurrected body, which are uh, superior, perhaps in some ways, than just our body as they are now. I think this is one of the reasons why Paul might say, you know, we do not yet know yet what we shall become. But of course, Paul has seen the resurrected Christ when he's saying this. To some extent, he he does sort of know, but it doesn't mean that you fully understand or grasp every part of that reality of what we shall become. So, yes, the resurrection, we believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus, not just that, it, that it's a sort of phantom or a ghost sort of wandering around and it's ruled out by the gospel narratives themselves. Yeah, so let's just move on to how different people respond 
to the resurrected Jesus. Because I think this is very interesting and actually gives us hope for us. In one of the accounts of Mary Magdalene, so this is John's gospel, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb early in the morning. And when she gets there, she realizes that the tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled back. And she runs to tell Simon Peter and the beloved disciple. She reports to them that they've taken the body away. So that's her initial response is that someone's removed the body. So she's not expecting the resurrection. And Peter and John then run to the tomb. John gets there first. He looks in, but he waits for Peter to arrive. And then Peter arrives and goes straight in and John follows him. But after Peter and John depart, Mary stays there. So she doesn't go with them. And she stays outside the tomb weeping. And she grieves deeply over the the one who she's loved and thinks still that the body has has gone missing and then mary looks into the tomb and what she sees is two angels sitting there one at the head and one at the at the feet where the body of jesus had been and they ask mary woman why are you weeping and she repeats the idea that jesus's body has been stolen and then when she turns around she sees jesus there but she doesn't know it's jesus she doesn't realize it's jesus straight away and he asks her the same question woman why are you weeping but he adds whom are you looking for and i think this is quite comical response mary mistakes jesus for the gardener so she says sir if you've carried him away tell me where you have laid him and obviously there's much significance there uh, over the fact that they're in a garden and it's a gardener but we won't, won't have time to go into that but having come to the tomb in the dark mary it's almost as if she still remains in the dark convinced that jesus remains dead and what convinces her that this is Jesus and that the resurrection has occurred is that Jesus mentions her by name. He says to her, Mary, and her eyes then are opened, which I think is a real encouragement to people because Jesus knows you personally, wherever you are in your faith. So whatever doubts or questions you have over your faith, Jesus knows you personally and calls you by name. So whatever wrestling you're going through with your faith, maybe you've grown up in the Catholic faith and you're struggling over what to make of this. Well, Jesus knows you personally and calls you by name, which I think is a great encouragement. Yeah, I completely agree. (laughs) There was something that you said earlier, which I'd like to come back to, which I thought was really fantastic. So we've spoken about the sort of the church's year and sometimes it can feel as though Holy Saturday, nothing really happens. You know, you don't have mass or or anything like that. It's just, oh, it's a quiet day. Nothing happens. It's it's a dead day. It's a day when people are just waiting and people sort of focus on, oh, well, you know, the disciples are in fear and they're hiding and things. But actually, you're quite right that this is a moment of dunamis or a moment of power, a moment of dynamite. It's a, it's a time of action. It's the time when Christ goes and descends to the place of the righteous dead and he liberates, he liberates people preaching the gospel. Now, there's also something that this reminds me of. It reminds me of Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus says, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Very often people interpret this as, oh, the church being under attack and you know, the church will not be overwhelmed by the forces of the underworld. But when was the last time you were attacked by gates? Actually, the the reverse is true, that the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against the church. And why is this the case? It's because of Christ. It's because of Christ. Christ goes into the place of the righteous dead and he rescues souls from that place, from shale, from the from the underworld. And this is then also the same authority and power that then he invests in Peter in Matthew 16, 18 and through Peter in, into the life of the church. 
So yeah, the Holy Holy Saturday is very much a time of action. It's a time of liberation. It's a time of salvation for the prophets and patriarchs. And it's also on the metaphysical level, of course, rather than on the temporal level. On our level, we are thinking about, you know, this in terms of, uh, of time. But of course, all of these things are happening in a way that's metaphysical so is beyond those constraints of time in a certain way and this is how the effects of the passion the death and the resurrection and the ascension are cosmic events and affect all of eternity because they're metaphysical truths not just temporal physical truths they're both so yeah you have this liberation of people and this is then also the same power that the church is given the church is invested with this with this authority and with this power to break through the those gates of hell to rescue souls and this is the mission with which the church is given and the church is given the necessary authority and power to fulfill her mission I think actually that point is shown in the account of Thomas, Thomas's reaction, and then Jesus's response to how Thomas responds to seeing the person of Jesus. Perhaps maybe we should mention some of the other appearances. So we've spoken a bit about Jesus appearing on the beach at the end of John's Gospel. We've spoken about Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene, Jesus appearing to the Twelve, and then later to Thomas a week later. Actually, that's an interesting question. Why does Jesus not appear to the apostles when Thomas himself is present. Surely he could have just waited till Thomas got back from the shops or whatever he was doing. <laughs> I wonder what Thomas was doing. Yeah, what was Thomas doing? I think that this really is given for our benefit because if Thomas had been there, then he wouldn't have denied this to the apostles that, that this could happen. And, you know, I always find it really sad that Thomas is remembered as doubting Thomas because, of course, earlier in the Gospels, he says, let us go and die with him, you know, which is such a beautiful thing and i think that he was so so upset and so disappointed and so perhaps shocked by what had happened it's almost like he can't dare to hope that his lord his friend the one who he loves is back and then of course he sees him and his greatest hopes have been fulfilled i think that the others are doubting and that's why jesus says no i'm not a phantom i'm really here you know you can believe your eyes this is really me yeah but i think they're doubting until they encounter jesus risen and Thomas is Downton for a week more, you know? It's not like he's different from the others. But I think it is in order to give us those beautiful lines. Of encouragement. Yeah, those who do not ever encounter the, the risen person of Jesus physically in front of them. They don't have the privilege of putting their hand in his side. Blessed are they who, who have not seen and yet believe. Yeah, because it shows us then how later generations will come to believe. As I said previously, in each of the accounts of the encountering the risen Jesus after his resurrection, they come to faith after they realize it's the person of Jesus. But what about later generations and how are they to believe in Jesus when he doesn't appear to them physically? And I think the answer is in this, because Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. And how, how do they come to believe? Well, through encountering the risen Jesus, through the testimony of the disciples. I mean, when you think of Peter preaching to all those, the thousands of people at Pentecost, they come to believe through the testimony of Peter and the disciples. So I think in, in scripture and in tradition, that's where we come to believe. Remember earlier, Jesus prays for the later generations of believers who will believe in me through their word. So through the words of the apostles in 
scripture and tradition. So mm. I think that's why we have this conversation between Jesus and Thomas, uh, so that the gospel is given to us through scripture and tradition. So later generations encounter the risen Jesus. Yeah, I, I think this is, um, I think that's the thing, you know, the church is a non-negotiable element of our life with Christ. It is intended in the providence and will of, uh, and the will and the wisdom of God that the church should exist and that we should trust the testimony of our brothers and sisters, that we should love each other, that we should trust each other. And yeah, this, this faith that we're called to have is yes in God, yes it's in Christ, but it's also in the, in the testimony of the church. It's a non-negotiable element. Let's also remember that the church sees herself as the next sort of logical step in Israel's journey and that all of these things are done so that the scriptures might be fulfilled as St. Paul says in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, is it 1 Corinthians 15? where he says um, that all of these things are done so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. 1 Corinthians, sorry, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. All of these things are done so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. I think there he's referring to Isaiah 53. And of course, what do we see on the road to Emmaus? Uh, Jesus asks the disciples on the road to Emmaus, on the, he says, well, what are you talking about? And he says, you must be the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know what's been going on. And so then, obviously, Jesus knows that they're talking about him and they recount to him what's happened. And then Jesus says, you know, have you not read the scriptures? And then he it says that he opens the scriptures to them, that he tells them, he shows all of the prophecies in the Old Testament, which were about himself and were about the things that happened. And then it says that the disciples recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And then they run, they run back to tell everybody what they've seen. And they say, did our hearts not burn within us when they opened the script, when he opened the scriptures to us? So Jesus appears not just to Mary Magdalene, uh, not just to the apostles uh, in the upper room and not just to Thomas. There are multiple witnesses, many, many, many witnesses. There's also the guards at the tomb who were bought off to try and get them to change their testimony about what they saw because they were afraid that they saw this man back from the dead. So yeah, there are, this is another thing to remember that there's multiple attestation at the time. And this is one of the reasons why it spreads like wildfire. That multiple people claim at the time to have seen Jesus. Yeah, I think Paul even says that 500 people at once have seen the risen Jesus in one of these letters and he says that some of them have died but as if to say many of them are still alive and you can go talk to them it's not just an illusion you can talk to them yeah you can verify this yourself and this is of course what what Luke says in his gospel doesn't he you know I've I am undertaking it to write an orderly account of the things that you have heard most excellent Theophilus at the beginning of his of his gospel account and it also then at the beginning of the gospel of Acts we see that then you know in my earlier account Theophilus I wrote about the, these things that you've heard about and things Luke presents himself as someone who has gone and investigated these things for himself some people would say oh look Luke sort of contradicts some other sort of accounts Luke isn't contradicting previous accounts I think what Luke is doing is he's giving us more details he's providing a complementary account to the other gospels that like Mark and Matthew which are already being circulated at this time and this is what I think Theophilus has heard I think Theophilus has heard about Mark Theophilus has heard uh, about Matthew even testimony which isn't written down oral tradition yeah exactly and so then what does he do he goes to he goes to investigate uh he, he he himself goes to investigate these things and interview people who were there who saw these things and he finds out extra details 
Why I think that Luke in particular has knowledge of Matthew and provides a complementary account of for Matthew is that you see parallels between the infancy narratives. Luke and Matthew are the only two with infancy narratives and Matthew follows Joseph, uh, whereas Luke follows Mary. It's too close to be a coincidence. There's a parallel which Luke is trying to draw upon and he's not trying to say, oh, no, you know, ignore, <laughs> ignore Matthew's account. And, you know, when he's talking about Joseph, you know, where it's really at is Mary. What he's doing is he's providing other details to the story from people who are around at the time. So he's trying to give us more information. And what he's doing is he's providing more. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's not just he's not just in the habit of verifying what's already gone. He's in the habit of collecting more information, more details in order that we in order that we can believe. And he provides this to to Theophilus. I think actually what you're trying to say is that Q. Oh, stop it. You're terrible. If you if you want to if you want to know why Dan's bringing up Q, go and listen to our first episode. Um, this is this is, relates to how we first met when I bored him to death with why I think Q is a load of nonsense. But actually, it is a good point that they the different witness testimonies they add to each other. Also, maybe remember what we said a couple of episodes ago in how to how to read the Bible about the Lumen Propheticum, how the uh, prophet is enlightened by the Holy Spirit to see historical realities through God's eyes and to interpret history then in the way that, that God sees these things but also remembering what sort of text it is that you're dealing with. So in the case of Joshua, for example, you're dealing with a text which isn't on the face of it uh, a historical text. It's about other things, perhaps, or there'll be parts of, of historical truth that, that are interwoven with theologized history. But in the case of, of the Gospels, what you're having are testimonies about things that have happened. There are some, uh, obviously, some allegorical truths there. There are some metaphorical truths there and things. But why is it we can say that all of these various testimonies are accurate even when they sort of they might remember things ever so slightly differently with one or two things that gives us again extra credibility to to the fact that these that somebody has gone to interview these various things and tried not to alter or change their testimony but also remembering that the person who's writing these things down has also been inspired by the Holy Spirit to see these events through the eyes of God himself to interpret history in the way that God intends one of the beautiful things that happens at the Saturday vigil when we celebrate the resurrection is the singing of the Alleluia. So throughout Lent, we don't have the singing of the Alleluia, but we do now because of the resurrection. Alleluia means to praise the Lord. So we praise the Lord because of the resurrection. And Augustine, St. Augustine says that we are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song. I mean, if anyone of our listeners knows of the papacy of St. John Paul II. He mentioned this over and over again. We are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song. St. Augustine has these wonderful words. He goes on to say, Now therefore we urge you to praise God. So he's obviously writing to the people of God. That is why we are telling each other when we say Alleluia. You say to your neighbour, praise the Lord, because that's what Alleluia means, praise the Lord. And he says the same to you. So we are all urging one another to praise the Lord, but see your praise comes from your whole being. So in other words, not just with, with your lips, but from your whole being, uh, from your mind, your voice, your heart, your actions, let everything that you are praise the Lord and sing Alleluia one to another. So praise the Lord, Brother Thomas. Alleluia. 
Hallelujah. <laughs> you know, we were originally going to call this uh, podcast something like Secret Dixit, which means as he said, you know, sort of sassy Jesus, you know, he did exactly as he said he'd do. One of the things that people very often will say on uh, Easter Sunday, someone will say resurrects it, and then the other person will say Secret Dixit, or Christos Anesti, meaning Christ has risen, and then the other person will say Christos Alithos Anesti, meaning Christ has truly risen in the Greek. Yeah, so when the time comes. <laughs> For Sunday, when this is released, happy Easter, praise the Lord. Happy Easter.